Entrepreneurs Over 40, Episode 26, with Alan Beckley talking about his invention, The Wonder Wallet, as well as his podcast, Inventors Helping Inventors. So now you got this prototype, so that's great. There's no money in that. So it's like, how do you market it? And the key thing I'll say to any inventor, marketing is dramatically harder than even patenting, right? Because patenting is just a process. Even prototyping, it's a process. And marketing is too, but most of us creative people don't naturally think in a marketing sense. You're listening to Entrepreneurs Over 40, the show for somewhat mature entrepreneurs and side hustlers. And now your host, Greg Mills. Our guest today is an entrepreneur, inventor, and podcaster. He got a degree in aerospace engineering from Texas A&M and worked for the Boeing Company. He soon realized he liked aviation and airplanes, but not big companies and bureaucracy. Seeking a role with more impact, he moved to the Dallas-Fort Worth area, got interested in telecom, and became a project manager for a small company. Over the years, that small company got gobbled up by large companies. Soon he found himself once again back where he started, working for large bureaucratic companies. In 2002, he invented a thin, flexible wallet that carried twice as many cards, it was half as thick as most wallets and flex for comfort. He didn't quite know how to, to best proceed, so he created a crude prototype out of cardboard and plastic pockets. And he also found a local patent attorney and filed a patent on his invention. Now his invention felt real to him. Like many inventors, he soon discovered that inventing was the easy part. Achieving commercial success was the hard part. Along his journey to success, he manufactured wallets in China, sold to thousands of individuals at flea markets, on military bases, VA hospitals, and even on QVC for two years. Customers loved the thin, flexible wallets, but every time he attempted to license the concept, there was only mild interest. Finally, in 2015, after five years of persistence, he licensed his invention, now called the Wonder Wallet, to All Star Products, a large as seen on TV distributor. The Wonder Wallet was a huge TV sales success story, selling in over 10,000 retail stores, accruing over 30 million in sales. Today, he continues to invent, but also focuses on helping other inventors to succeed, providing a variety of resources to help them. He has over five years of blog content on inventing topics. He also provides weekly webinars for inventors called License Your Invention for Royalties. Additionally, he has a digital online course, Land Your License Deal. In January 2019, he started a podcast interviewing successful inventors called Inventors Helping Inventors. Today, his weekly podcast is heard on all the major platforms in the U.S., Canada, and 15 other countries. Listen Notes ranks it in the top 1.5% of podcasts worldwide. In October 2020, he launched a boot camp for inventors called the Inventors Boot Camp. Without further ado, Alan Beckley. Hey, hey. Good to be here. Thanks so much, Greg. Well, thank you for being here. Now, Alan, can you take a few moments and fill in the gaps from that intro and bring us up to speed with what's going on in your world today? Sure. I think the intro kind of covers the, the past history. In my dark days that all inventors face where every day you ask yourself, why the heck are you doing this thing? I said to myself, if I ever achieve success, I'm going to reach out and help other inventors to succeed. And so when I 
achieve success via direct response TV, then I remembered that vow. And so part of that effort was to create the Inventors Helping Inventors podcast so that thousands of inventors could get a message of hope as well as also being informed from successful inventors and the tools, tips, and tactics they used. And then from there, then I branched out a bit and I do have the online course you mentioned that is really a step-by-step how to license your product as well as the free webinar I do. And then the boot camp for inventors called the Inventors Boot Camp. And then last but not least, just in the last few months, I've started an inventors membership group also called Inventors Helping Inventors. So for only $25 a month, inventors can connect with top-tier inventors, resources, et cetera. So that's a long-winded part of what I'm doing, but those are the three key areas where I'm helping inventors to uh, to have more success. Okay. Now, I didn't mention this in your bio, but I understand that you're fluent in English and Spanish, which I can understand, but you're also fluent in Mandarin. How did that come about? Well, I wouldn't quite say fluent, but I've taken four years of Mandarin. Language is great for your brain. And as we get older, we think about that sort of thing a bit more. And so I've taken Mandarin for four years and I've been to China twice. Once was to actually see my product being manufactured. And I decided if I was going to take on a real challenge, then Mandarin is one of the hardest languages to learn out there for sure. So that's where that interest has come in. Okay. Now, did you come from an entrepreneurial background or an inventor's background at all? My dad was a veterinarian. I'd say that I came from an adventurous background. My dad was in some ways like in modern day Indiana Jones. I lived in Panama for about 10 years and was born there in the Canal Zone. And that's where I got an interest in Spanish. But within my family, I'm the only one who's truly, I guess not the only one who's truly an entrepreneur, but the main one who is. My sister ran her own uh, medical business as a dermatologist. I guess that's a long-winded way of saying mostly no, except I came from an adventurous background, a travel background, and entrepreneurship was not such a unique surprise that way. Okay. Now, can you describe what you were doing in your job at, at the telecom before becoming an inventor? In telecom, I got into project management because that was the closest thing to being a consultant and being paid a paycheck every two weeks that I could find. So I got to be an entrepreneur, so to speak, and do something different and wear different hats every day, which I really liked. As long as I was working for smaller companies, that was the experience. But of course, as the big companies gobbled up the small companies, I found myself, as you just described, back to square one. So again, a bit of a long-winded answer, but I was attracted to the aspect of being able to do a variety of different things and as an employee and grow my skills and be a little bit more in the marketing side of things than the engineering side as much. Okay. Now, as a project manager, how many projects were you managing typically at the same time? So typically three or four in the sort of waning years, which, you know, it's the same story as a variety of corporations where, you know, they have too much work for too few people and you soon see that they're not going to be hiring more people. And so you realize you're going to be overtasked. And that frustrated me is one reason I was happy to leave ultimately was because I wanted to serve my customers. And when you're just floating with three or four, even some of my colleagues had five different projects to run at once, you can't really serve your customers very well, but you know, there's not going to be any more hands on deck. So I just found that to be frustrating. 
how did being a project manager help you at all? Were there any transferable skills? There were a lot of transferable skills. You have to keep a schedule as a project manager. You have to look at a project and a start and end date. And really working with customers and understanding what their needs are and matching against what you can do. I think largely as an inventor, if you're going to achieve success, you need to look at it as a project also and apply a discipline to what you're doing. So really almost everything I did as a project manager was transferable to what I have done as an inventor as well. Now, how did the Wonder Wallet come about? And at the time I realized you were calling it the Savvy Caddy. Right, right. So way back when in 2002, like so many things, I found a problem. And that is most of us carry quite a few more cards than, than we would normally say if somebody were to ask. You say, how many cards do you carry? Oh, I don't know, four or five. And they open up a wallet and it's two inches thick. And it's like you're carrying more than four or five or something in there. And so I was typically carrying maybe 12 or 14 different cards. And these aren't all credit cards. It's just ID cards for work and this and that and the other. All the things we get, store cards, anything, Sam's Club, all the rest of it. And I spent the better part of two years trying to solve the problem of a thick, bulky wallet and sitting on this big, thick deck. And one morning in the shower, I was thinking about why is it if I get a bifold or trifold, it always ends up being thick, just like a deck of cards. That was my thought process. And I thought, what if you could cut the deck? And so I got out of the shower and I laid four cards out side by side. And I thought, if that would fold up and fit in a back pocket, it would be two stacks of cards, not one. And it would automatically be half as thick. And that was the beginning of the idea. And then it also turned out that the end result was flexible. So it flexed between the cards so it didn't hurt when you sit on it. That's where the original idea for Savvy Caddy began. I just, I saw a real valuable product there that I was unwilling to let go and I was going to see it through to success. Now, describe the prototyping process, what materials you used and how many iterations you went through. Well, that's a great question. I, you know, I went through a lot of, this was an early prototype. As you can see, it doesn't look too exotic. I sewed it up myself with swatches of leather and upholstery needles. I went through probably a total of around nine or 10 different prototypes. And each one was a little bit more refined in terms of measurement and other things. Probably the first two, three, four were the ones that were fairly significant in changes until I felt like I I had what I wanted when the dimensions were right and everything. In terms of materials, again, it's it's made of leather and I needed plastic inserts to be a little different than they are in most wallets. So I just went and got inserts from the store and I'd cut them up with scissors and tape them together in the way I wanted and put the whole kit and caboodle together as a proof of concept so I could know for a fact that it would work. And then I knew when it came to manufacturing, you could manufacture them however you wanted them manufactured. What were your steps after doing that? So now you got this prototype. So that's great. There's no money in that. So it's like, how do you market it? And the key thing I'll say to any inventor, marketing is dramatically harder than even patenting, right? Because patenting is just a process. Even prototyping, it's a process. And marketing is too. But most of us creative people don't naturally think in a marketing sense. So the key was to find a way I wanted to get it licensed to a large wallet manufacturer. And I spent three years pitching to the wallet manufacturers before I realized I could be spending 10 more years. But one of them told me, look, your product has to be shown to be understood. 
right? And so this is a sell-on TV product. You should take it to, you know, um, QVC. So that ultimately changed my direction where I did go to QVC and I was there for two years. And when I had success on QVC, I became firmly committed that it really was a direct response TV product, a DRTV product. And I spent five years of persistence before I succeeded in getting it to all-star products where Turned out it was very successful on DRTV. How did you get on to QVC? How did they discover you or how did you pitch yourself? So the way that I got to QVC, I found a gentleman that knew a QVC rep, just like any kind of product rep that works with people who are coming onto the show. And he knows what the buyers are buying, et cetera. And I reached out to him. He thought it looked interesting. We did some back and forth on it and he took it and presented it to a QVC buyer and she liked it. She ordered a few more than I thought she was going to order. So then I had to uh, make a, let's say, an adjustment, so to speak. But basically, the path that I got to QVC. Okay. Well, let's talk a little bit more about QVC. Did you have to stockpile product? From what I understand, you've only got a few minutes to actually pitch, and then it can be crickets or it could be gold. That is absolutely right. Give me a couple minutes. I'll kind of give you the clear picture of what QVC is like. I think it'd be helpful to listeners. QVC is 100% risk because they're giving you the opportunity to be in front of roughly 92 million total potential viewers. It's not that many at any one time. And you do have about four to five minutes on air. And you don't actually have all that time. You've got about two minutes really to make your pitch. So at that time, I think it's still true. A typical QVC buyer, if he or she liked the product, would order somewhere between, I'd say, forty dollars to $60,000 worth of retail product, right? Now, that's not your wholesale cost. Mine was about 3,000 wallets that I needed to get manufactured, get ready to go, get them shipped to QVC. They had to be in QVC warehouse on a particular week. And that was quite a logistics chain from China through the Panama Canal to New York, et cetera. They help you a lot. They have you come to QVC, you do some practice, you do some training, you know what it's like to be in front of the camera. They want you to be successful. But the key thing is when you go on air, as we just described in your segment, you'll have four to five minutes and it could be any time of the day or night whenever they've scheduled you. And your success or failure is all about dollars per minute. Whatever your sales rate is compared to everyone else in that segment, you should be in about the top one third, ideally, and you'll be invited back. In other words, if you do well enough and you sell well enough and you still have some inventory, then they will have you back for another airing, which is what happened on the first year. In the second year, I got through one airing and then in the end, I got a return of the remaining inventory to me. Did you ever pre-sell or get people lined up to call in? I actually didn't do that. I imagine there's people who do. I mean, you could tell your friends when you're going to be on and encourage them to buy. But in general, QVC doesn't particularly encourage that. But even with that, there's millions of people who are going to be watching and only a tiny fraction are going to order. But that's still enough to be quite successful. So it's really about creating a compelling pitch that somebody watching the show will say, oh my gosh, I want one of those. That's the key. I just remember watching the movie Joy and having Jennifer Lawrence, who was part of Joy, pitch and there were crickets. And then our good friend calls up and orders one and raves about it. (laughs) 
my QVC rep was telling me because he was sitting in the green room watching on the very first pitch, which is always one you don't know exactly how it's going to go. And he said he was just seeing it flatline, you know. And then I did the first demo, it went bang. And I did another demo, it went bang. And I did another demo. And so after we got done with that and it you know, was generally successful, he says, Alan, you need to focus on demos. He said, the next time, get right to the demos because that's when you're getting your sales pitch, your sales. Why do you think that people were so loath to license it? It seems like it'd be a no-brainer, especially after it appeared on QVC. Well, I can actually tell you specifically why, and it's something unique to the product. And that is the wallet itself is physically a little larger than other wallet types. And it does fit in all pockets. But most people's experience, most men's experience is they buy a wallet in the store and it looks quite small. And they think, oh, that's good. And they load it up with cards and become thick. So they project what they see in the store is going to become fat when they put their cards in it. So if what they see in the store looks thicker to begin with, they don't get that it's going to flex so it'll be comfortable and that this actually has 24 cards, so it's incredibly thin for the amount of volume. So it, it, it had to have a story told, so to speak, to be successful. So that's why QVC was a success. So then why in the world would it do well in stores after DRTV? Well, 5,000 commercials, right, or thereabouts, and all these people have heard Wonderwallet. Somewhere in the back of the mind, they've heard it. And they go to a Walmart store and they say, oh, there's that Wonder Wallet. Oh, I heard that was good. They don't even know where they heard it, but they, it clicks. And they say, yeah, I'm going to give that a try. Whereas if they just said Wonder Wallet and they'd never heard of it, they'd say, hmm, that's interesting. And they'd move on to the next thing. I hate the way you just explained that because I totally can identify with that. <laughs> and I would like to think that I'm smarter than that. Don't take offense in the sense that we're all like that when you look at it. And that is throughout any product in a retail store, the average person looks at about six seconds before they make a buying decision. So they're looking at the toothpaste and they're looking at, well, this one makes real white teeth. This one looks like, oh, I usually buy Crest and I just buy Crest. I mean, that's, that's the way it tends to go. There's a real brand identification that drives a lot. Okay. Now, going back to the direct response TV model, mm -hmm. can you talk a little bit more about the direct response TV? You mean how it's different, for example, than QVC or how it works? Yeah, or? yeah a little of both, actually. So one way to think of QVC or HSN is the product will be on occasionally. If you're very successful, you're like a Lori Grenier, you might have a product on once a month or something like that. But across a year, you're not going to see it tons and tons of time for most people. So it's still good, but it's nowhere near the exposure of something that is on DRTV because, as I described, there's thousands of commercials. And when they drive it into retail stores, the sales there are something like seven to 12 times as much as the sales that they have through the portal where people see it and order it from TV. So the key thing about the success within DRTV is people still do watch television commercials. That's part of it. And they don't do just TV, they social media and online, et cetera, as well. But the key is to drive all these commercials, create a huge awareness. And then when it drives into retail stores, that's where the money is made and also online, et cetera. And so that's really the model. And it is very close to meritocracy. And by that, I mean, there's specific metrics for any product they look at, the average cost per sale, the average sales per call. And if those metrics aren't where they need to be, it is not going to get a green light. It'll get a red light and it'll never go a step further. 
And that's why probably 90% of the products that are taken to DRTV, no matter how good they look, if they don't make the metrics, they're not going to put millions of dollars behind doing a big push behind it. Do you still have an agreement with uh, all-star products? Well, I don't. One of the things about that is a huge sine wave, and it typically lasts about two years. And then as it begins to sell rate, begins to go down, then they move it out of the market. So it's mostly out of the market now in terms of DRTV. What inspired you to start your own podcast, Inventors Helping Inventors? So as a result of having achieved some success as an inventor and realizing that 95% of all inventors never make a profit from their product, and there's some specific reasons why this is so, I really wanted to reach out and create a message to thousands of inventors, a message of encouragement on the one hand, but also a message of reality on the other. And then I thought it would be exciting to have successful, interesting inventors on each week. So I've had people like Aaron Krauss from Shark Tank and the Scrub Daddy and some pretty amazing people like that, plus just lots and lots of inventors with different kinds of products. I feel like it's serving a really good mission. And that was my mission was to provide encouragement, information, and inspiration to inventors everywhere. And in a format that I didn't see at that time was out there so much and um, still not so much even now, but it was a little different format, you know, than some others. There's some other invention podcasts, but I think yours by far gives a lot of good information. Well, thanks for that. Yeah. And and I will say there are some other good uh, podcasts out there now. So I'm good friends with Jim DeBetta and I was just on his podcast. They have a, a good podcast as well for inventors. Do you have any other invention products of your own that are, are currently ongoing or ideas in the background? I've been working on my little flashy disco-like cat toy for an embarrassing number of years. And when I say working on, I've been so busy with these other things that I'm doing, it's not getting the attention it should. But I think it has some potential. And I have a few other ideas. But again, the things that I'm doing that I described to you do take up a lot of time, but also they help other inventors. So I'm kind of on that mission for a while. Yeah, I can understand that. And plus, do we really need cats that can disco dance? We well, might, actually. Toys, well, it's it just the flashy little lights and all that. Pet toys are a particularly good place to invent because people buy such things in good economies, bad economies. And especially a cat toy, if they buy a toy for their little cat and the cat like, hmm, they're not likely to rush back to the store and demand a you know, refund because the cat probably goes hmm, for about half of what they get. You know, So... That's a good product to be selling, right? Because the bar is set pretty low. Yeah, we had an elderly dog and I I bought an embarrassing amount of stuff that I thought would help him Uh that never really worked like I thought it would and never got used. But it's not like I returned it. I had my cat for 20 years, but I need to get me another one. He was a great cat and really missed him when he was gone. But I certainly bought a variety of things for him and made me feel good and it seemed to work for him. So it's all good. Yeah. If you'd like, if you get me your shipping information after the show, I'll get you ours. No, I, and I don't think I'll take that. <laughs> I won't take you up on that deal, but yeah. How should somebody validate their idea, both to make sure that it's viable as well as to make sure that it's not already out there? Such a great question and very near and dear to my heart. And it, to do a little commercial, it's one of the key parts of the boot camp for inventors that we do about once a month. How do you validate your product? Well, one of the first things that you should do is to 
compare it against other successful products. There's seven key parameters that you can use, and it's not just inventive products. And some of them are pretty much common sense, like is the market for it, or there are millions of people who would buy it potentially. You don't want a niche product, ideally. And can it be have a 3x to 5x markup? This is super crucial. It, your cost should be about 20% of the retail sales price, or it will not be successful. Does it solve some kind of a problem or something that will make people you know, feel like it's compelling and they want to buy it? So doing that due diligence to compare it that way, and then secondarily, doing a lot of research to see if it already is out there or it already exists. And very frequently it does. There's 11 million issued patents, most of which have never seen the light of day. And if you're going to you know, license it, you very likely will need to have a patent on it. And if something from 30 years ago is sitting there in the patent office that's quite similar to yours, you probably won't get a patent for it. So doing that due diligence, seeing that it really is a genuine need, or it's a product that would solve a problem in a way that would be enticing and interesting to people and somewhat compelling, and that it can be made and manufactured at a price that is profitable for everybody would be some of the key steps to validating the product, if that makes sense. Okay. So like maybe describing your product on Google and then going to the images, taking a look that way. That's a good one. Um, That's a good place to start. I always say that the two A's plus plus uh, Google, I say Amazon, Alibaba, and Google and Google Images is a great place to get started because you will find lots and lots of things there, even qvc.com and hsn.com, because every month they debut products that haven't been seen anywhere else. But it's frustrating to inventors to go through this research process but it's one of the best things they will ever do because otherwise they could spend thousands of dollars on a product that two, three years down the road, they find out they're not going to get a patent for. And if they had done some due diligence in the beginning, they could have saved themselves a lot of money. What actually is the life of a patent? So if you were to find something that had, we'll say, for example, had been out 30 years or had been patented 30 years ago, has that necessarily expired? Yeah, it has actually. It's 20 years from the filing date that the maximum time you can get for a patent. You couldn't obviously patent it again, but you could conceivably create the product yourself and market it, manufacture it yourself and sell it. They're probably, you probably couldn't license it to anybody. Yeah. And it's not quite that cut and dried because there are things that do license that aren't even patented. And there's lots of things in the marketplace selling that aren't patented. For one, like you just described, it's a crowded marketplace and you couldn't get a patent on it, but still it's unique enough to sell. The thing to think about is it's not just whether or not it's patented. It's if there's something in the public domain anywhere, then that would make it unpatentable. If the patent examiner says, oh, well, this product exists in the public domain, even if it's not a patented product. So the bar is kind of high on patenting. Yeah, I think I remember watching the Shark Tank episode with the reader rest where the Uh guy had the little magnetic clip on his shirt and he put glasses in. And I thought, yeah, I see using that. Yeah, yeah. And then I thought a pen would be good. Yeah. And I went on and I think I looked on patents.google.com. And lo and behold, I think Charles Krauthammer had patented it, the former political pundit. Oh, how interesting. I think he had quite a few actually, but... That was my moment in the in the the sun that lasted all of like 
I think three and a half minutes. Even uh, Michael Jackson had a patent on an item that would sort of nail into the floor that could connect with his shoes so he could lean back at an impossible angle. This mm-hmm. is where he came up with this for one of his videos where he leans way far back or way, I think it's way far forward. And the heels of the shoe were being held tightly to the floor so he could do this seemingly impossible to, you know, task. So, and there was a patent in his name for that. So, so going back to, I have this great idea for a product and assuming I hadn't already found it. Can you walk us through the, the steps to commercializing it? Sure. After you've done, as we talked about earlier, your due diligence and your validation where you feel like you've really got something. And that's not just talking to your friends and family. Ideally, show it to somebody at a store that would be a potential buyer and ask them their opinion. Do you think this might sell in your store, et cetera? But then once you think you've got something, then you would at least file probably a provisional patent application, which just gives you one year of being able to say that you're patent pending and it doesn't cost much. And then the next thing is to start doing some research on what kind of companies might buy it. Here I'm recommending the idea of licensing as opposed to building a business around it. You can do that, but I've done both, but venturing can be very expensive. Licensing means somebody else takes the product on for you and pays you a royalty. So doing some research and to see what companies have maybe similar product lines and where your product would be of a benefit to them and give them an additional bite at the apple or something that's of value. And then the process of getting in touch with them, which most inventors don't enjoy doing, but it's trial and error, et cetera. And then seeing if you get a chance to um, pitch it to them in a short meeting and show them why it might be a great product for them and see where it goes from there. Are there any instances where it's advisable not to get a patent or just not necessary? You may not be able to make a broad blanket statement, but what I would say is lots of toys are not patented for a simple reason. And that is it typically takes about three years for a patent to issue. And the lifetime of probably 90% of new toys in the marketplace is less than three years. In other words, it flies and it dies inside of three years. So why would you spend thousands of dollars to get a patent for something that by the time your patent issues, it's, it's already done, so to speak. That's what I've heard as to a reason why a lot of toys, there are some that are patented, but a lot of toys are not patented for that reason. Roger Brown is an interesting man who's had a lot of success and he doesn't patent anything, but his approach is he does do a provisional patent, you know, just while he's introducing it to them. And he makes them a deal and says, look, if you want to license my product, then I will let you take on the utility patent. In other words, you can file and pay for the utility patent and it will be in your name. In other words, as long as you're selling my product, right? But if and when the the deal terminates, then the patent would then be assigned back to me. And he's done that for probably 20 years and had quite a bit of success with it. So that's a creative way where he wouldn't take on the expense of patenting. How would you go about finding a uh, partner to, to license with today? So the, what I would do is kind of similar to what we just described is I would say, okay, what is my product? Let's say it's a travel-related product. That's another area that's often good, people doing air travel or what have you. And then I would say, so what is the unique or compelling sales point of this product? And what kinds of companies might be interested in having that? So it could be somebody like 
American tourist or somebody that makes baggage and things like that? Would it be something that would be something nice for them to have? And then do some research and try to think broadly, what are a variety of different companies that it might be worth approaching that would see some benefit in it? And then it's, you know, then it's just kind of a trial and error and seeing, seeing what works and where there's interest, if that makes sense. Okay. Yeah, that does. I, I can imagine where LinkedIn would probably could come in very handy with that. It is. In fact, Stephen Key has written a book about specifically using LinkedIn. I don't remember the title of it, but using LinkedIn as a resource for one to find company names and who some of the company officers are. So that's that's actually quite a good resource to get you started down that way as well. Okay. Now you're in negotiations with the company. What's a fair royalty deal? You know, are we talking like 60%, 70% for me, or which sounds pretty good, but I'm also thinking I might be overreaching. You are way overreaching, but I'll explain why. I, there's no such thing as an absolute typical royalty, so there's kind of a range, and it's small. In other words, in DRTV, a royalty can be 2 or 3% of gross sales, all the way up to maybe 7% for other, certain kinds of products. And at first, it seems like, well, that's not fair. That's hardly anything. Well, if you look at it in the right way, a company that's successful, All Star Products is a great example. At the end of the day, for all the things they do, they make about a 10% net profit margin on all their sales. So if they're paying you a 2% royalty, effectively for every $10 coming in and profit to them, they're giving you two of them. So that's not such a bad deal, right? But a lot of inventors are very short-sighted and they get too greedy and they tell a company they want to say 5% royalty. Sometimes people say that's an average royalty and it's it, the standard deviation is too high, but let's just say it's an average royalty. And the company comes back and says, well, we never pay more than 4%. And the inventor is like, oh, well, duh, duh, and thinks they're trying to rip them off. And they walk away with no deal when they could have had a great deal with a 4% royalty. It was a whole lot better than nothing. So that pride is very expensive. I call it inventor greed. Get the best deal you can. And then move on because that deal may be much better than you thought it was. Yeah. So, yeah. That sounds like it'd be a very good deal, actually. It'd be a very good deal, actually. Yeah. The, other, the other one while I'm on the subject is if there's two parts that give you an idea to the extent that the royalty is a good deal for you. It's what I call the footprint. How many stores are they going to get it into? Times the royalty. So when you say DRTV only pays maybe 2%, sometimes you think, well, that's a rip. Oh my gosh, all these other people paying 5%. But if it goes in 10,000 stores at that 2% and this other manufacturer would have it in 3,000 stores at 5%, I'm thinking you're coming out in a pretty good deal with that 2% royalty after, after all. So you really have to look at the whole picture to make a decision. Okay. Now, after it's licensed and mm-hmm. after you've got a royalty deal, and maybe the first couple of checks have come in. What typically do they require of you? Because I can see where it'd be in all parties' best interest for you to maybe do a promotional commercial or to do some sort of promotions like an ad campaign or podcasts. Oh, is that typical? It's not typical. But but uh, here's what I'll tell you is that every company is a little different. And they will generally not discourage you if you're going to do something that promotes it. Right. But they are going to treat it as their own product once they take it on. And indeed, for the most part, it will be because they'll be doing all these things, packaging, manufacturing, they're taking all those headaches off your plate 
and they're much better at it than you are anyways, you would want to get their permission to see if they're okay with you doing that. But in general, they're usually somewhat hands-off. In other words, once a company has taken it on and you've reached an agreement and moving forward, they've got their own ways, their own sales channels, and they've been doing this for many years. And they're willing, certainly willing to hear ideas and suggestions and maybe retailers that they're not in. But in general, they, they want the inventor to step back and maybe move on to something else and work on other products while they're moving forward with it, if that makes sense. I was just thinking with your product benefiting from being demonstrated and you've already been on QVC, that might be a kind of a no brainer. But I offered and they said, oh, thank you. No. And I wasn't offended because they actually took it a different direction than I would have. They took it to HSN and they focused on women, which was actually smart because women buy more wallets than men and they buy for their boyfriends, husbands, et cetera. So it actually was a better angle than I had taken. Okay. Now, what are some common mistakes that you see inventors make? And I think you've already hit on a few of them, like with the inventor pride and yeah. not taking the royalty deal. The first and foremost is, I guess it's a form of hubris that we all naturally think that our idea has never been seen anywhere ever before. And we don't think, well, there's almost 8 billion people on planet Earth. Every one of them has 10 ideas a day. What are the odds someone else has had this idea? And also... We don't want to search too carefully because we're afraid we'll find it, right? We don't think about, well, if it's there and we don't find it and we spend thousands of dollars and then later it comes back that it's already there, that, that's logically thinking. We're thinking emotionally like, I don't really want to find it. So I'll just look in a couple of retail stores. Ah, it's nowhere. And I have inventors every day say, oh, I looked everywhere. There's nothing like it. And I'll go to Walgreens and I'll say, there's something right there that's selling in a Walgreens. It looks an awful lot like it. So number one would be, back to doing a due diligence and really doing a product search to see what is out there that's selling that is similar. And if, if it's your good fortune that you can say there's nothing quite like it selling out there, then that's good. I guess number two is falling to the siren songs of invention marketing companies, right? Because actually I could write the script for one of these companies, right? They will usually shake an inventor down from ten dollars to $20,000, and they'll reach out and they say, oh, Mr. Mills, oh my gosh, you do realize this is a million dollar product. And you say, oh, that's what I've been telling everybody else, but they don't listen. They say, oh, sir, this is a great product. And, and you know, we've seen some, but this is a really good one. And you go, well, yeah, you know, and you say, well, can you help me? And they say, oh, are you kidding? We have relationships with all the big box retailers. Now, what that means is I do too. I shop in Target and Walmarts. And so those that's meaningless statements, you know, but they'd say, oh yeah, we have relationships with all these companies. We can get it in the marketplace in a big way. And they're just fluffing you up and they're telling you exactly what you want to hear. They make it sound very easy. And the road to riches, this is a million dollar product. It's a good thing you brought it to us. You know, we can get you there. And then it then it gets to a certain point where how much is this going to be? And you say, well, Sir, this month, I'll just tell you, the boss can let me do this. It's really just 9950 Now, we usually are looking at about $12,000 with our clients, but I'm going to make you a deal. And the guy says, oh, I don't know. I mean, gee, that seems like a lot. I need to talk to my wife about that and go, oh, you need to get her permission. Well, no, I don't have to get her permission. They're playing that male ego yeah. and all this. And then if they push back some more and say, well, no, that's okay. We can just let it go. And, and, and they keep trying to get the person hooked. So the next thing they'll say something like this. This is why I say I could do the script if I was not a very ethical person. 
um, they can then say, sir, let me ask you, do you have a college degree? Well, yeah, I got a college. Well, did that cost you what? At least $30,000, didn't it? Well, yeah. Well, sir, if you're willing to invest that in your career for something that pays you well, wouldn't you be willing to put, you know, ten, twelve thousand dollars into a million dollar idea? Are you not are you really even serious about your product? Anyways, I gave you a long winded answer, but that's number two is to get hooked by folks like that. I see it happening every day. If it sounds too good to be true, it usually is. Mm -hmm. So those are two big ones, the mistakes that inventors make. We didn't mention this in the bio, but you've got two books out, uh, Daring to Invent, Eight mm -hmm. Steps to Turn Your Idea into a Successful Product, and Six Small Steps to Big Change, How to Upgrade Your Life One Tiny Action at a Time. Now, they both came out in 2016 and 2017, respectively. Right. Uh -huh. right. Do you have another book in you? I probably do. I just haven't put too much time into the ebook and all the rest. I actually recorded the audio for those myself at the time. Probably at some point I'll have a book about my whole journey, but I'm just not ready to do that yet. Okay. Now, what has inventing meant for you personally? How has it changed your life? Honestly, in a variety of ways. When I was working with my telecom buddies, still have a lot of buddies in telecom, and I was thinking our paths diverged in 2009 when I went full time going towards QVC, et cetera, and they continued doing their jobs. And I look at it and I say, you know, if I just continue to do what I was doing, I'd, I'd make a good living. But I don't think I would have made two trips to China. And then as a result of the success that I had from All Star Products, I took a 16-day vacation in, um, in Australia, one of my favorite places to go. And then I also took my kids to visit Machu Picchu. And more than anything, even if I hadn't had the success to do any of those things, the expansion and the fun of creating something that is meaningful and that people say, oh my gosh, I love this product. Everybody in my family's bought it. That feedback when you have a product that people love is something that is, is worth a lot because you're actually doing some good in the world, so to speak. It's a lot bigger than just you or you would never continue. When you got discouraged, you would just give up. If your only answer was, I can get rich, it's like, well, I'm not getting rich now. So that wouldn't be very fulfilling. But if you've had somebody like I did, because I, I sold it to a lot of veterans to be a hospital and military bases, I, I had people that tell me that their sciatica was better now because they're not sitting on a thick wallet. And many, many stories like that that made me realize that my life is richer, so to speak, for having chosen to take a path that's very different than what others have done. And I've helped quite a number of other inventors to get some real traction. And that's satisfying as well. I know you mentioned that you love to travel. Where are some of your favorite destinations? So I, I love Australia, and I've been to almost Australia. every major city in Australia twice. Um, super big fan of uh, British Columbia and Vancouver in particular. I lived in the Seattle area for about three and a half years, but Vancouver is just a delightful, beautiful city in British Columbia in general. And then I've been to China twice. I'll probably go again at some point post-COVID because I would like to see Shanghai, but I've never been to Europe yet. So that's a plan. And I do plan to go back to Panama where I lived for 10 years. It's been 30 years plus since I've been there just to see all the old stomping grounds and that. And I love to travel. There's so many places I'd like to go. So I'm not giving up on that anytime soon. So definitely there'll be another trip to Australia and a trip to Panama and some point a trip to Europe. 
So that'll keep me busy as a mere lad of 65 for quite some time, I suspect. (laughs) Where do you like to travel domestically? That's right. I like going to the national parks. I like to make another trip to the Pacific Northwest. I did go visit my daughter in the San Francisco Bay Area this summer, and that was a delightful trip. Been once to Tennessee. There's so many places I'd like to go. Many, Some I've been to and others I haven't been to yet. So I, I just love to travel. I don't love the travel experience of yeah. all the nonsense at the airport and getting on planes and all that, but I, I love the end result. Mm-hmm. Let's get ready to wrap this up. All right, sir. What piece of software or app do you find in- indispensable helping in the invention process? We did talk about LinkedIn being helpful for sure. But what else is a particularly good app for inventors? I guess Google, right? I mean, that's not exactly an app, but doing Google search on a variety of things. And I am pretty adept at using the USPTO.gov which is somewhat daunting if you don't know how to use it. A straight up answer would be developing skills to be good at researching things. So that could go back to Google again and various other places where you have the ability to reach out and see who are potential manufacturers and if the product's already out there and being willing and able to do that research is something that's really valuable. Okay. Now, what what's the number one piece of advice that you can give for our listeners? Even though I'm an engineer, I will tell you, I think it's valuable to have passion about what you're doing. Do something that really matters to you, that hopefully aligns with your skill set, because that's going to sustain you when you hit barriers and things aren't going so well. And also, people like to buy from somebody who is engaged with what they're doing. I mean, if you go to the store and somebody's like, oh, it's right over there, just knock yourself out, you know, like, really? You know, if they're saying, oh, my gosh, this is what you need. Let me show you. It's really cool. And you're like, I want to buy that. So having some passion around what you're doing and then treat it like a career, right? In other words, become knowledgeable, go out there and buy, for an inventor in particularly, but entrepreneurs too, buy the books that teach you about the patent process for an inventor, buy Stephen Key's One Simple Idea and buy my books if you like. Listen to the podcast, lots of free information. The world's a great podcast out there. Be an educated consumer in whatever realm that you're in and really Find joy in the process and not look at it just as a destination. So that's a very long-winded answer to your question, but those are the two key things I would I would focus on. Okay. Now, what's the best way for our listeners to check you out and get in touch with you? My website is alanbeckley.com. That's A-L-A-N-B-E-C-K-L-E-Y.com. And almost everything connects to that. So if you're interested in looking at my boot camps for inventors, that's alanbeckley.com slash bootcamp. And you can always find my podcast, which is Inventors Helping Inventors. And it's on, you know, if you do a Google search on that, you can find it. But also alanbeckley.com slash um, podcast. And what else? The last one I'd say is for my membership group. That's alanbeckley.com slash IHI25. And that would give you all kinds of information about it. But so alanbeckley.com will get you a to most of it. A-L-A-N-B-E-C-K-L-E-Y. Okay. Well, that's a wrap. Thank you, Alan, for being a guest on Entrepreneurs Over 40. Well, you bet. Thank you so much for having me as a guest. Next week, we'll have on Dana Knowles talking about how she overcame addiction to get her life straight, invent the shower caddy, and go on to become the director of inventor relations at InventRight. 
Be sure to hit subscribe in your podcast app so that you don't miss it or any other episodes. Thank you for listening to Entrepreneurs Over 40. Check us out at entrepreneursover40.com. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or your favorite podcast directory.